today's episode, I have the pleasure of hosting a panel discussion on the developing crisis in Ukraine with two exceptional leaders and patriots. Our sponsor for this episode is Red Cell Partners. Red Cell Partners is a design and incubation studio that brings ideas, capital, resources, and talent together to build technology-led companies that address the nation's most pressing challenges in finance, healthcare, and the national security space. My first guest is John Seifer. John is a foreign policy and intelligence expert who previously served 28 years in the Central Intelligence Agency's National Clandestine Service. At the time of his retirement, he was a member of the CIA's Senior Intelligence Service, the leadership team that guides the CIA's activities globally. John has served in multiple overseas tours as both Chief of Station and Deputy Chief of Station across Europe, Asia, and several other high-threat environments, to include Russia. He's a regular contributor to various news outlets and publications and very active, active as a social influencer. My second guest is Roger Ferguson. Roger is a former vice chairman of the Board of Governors of the U.S. Fed Reserve, where he served from 1999 to 2006. He represented the Fed on several international policy groups and served on key Federal Reserve committees, including payment systems oversight, reserve bank operations, and supervision regulation. As the only governor in D.C. on 9-11, he led the Fed's initial response to the terrorist attacks, taking actions that kept the U.S. financial system functioning while reassuring the global financial community that the U.S. economy would not be paralyzed. He is the Stephen A. Tenenbaum Distinguished Fellow for International Economics at the Council on Foreign Relations and the immediate past president and CEO of TIAA, the leading provider of retirement services in the academic, research, medical, and cultural fields, and also a Fortune 100 financial services organization. He attended Harvard for his undergrad, his law degree, and his PhD in economics. In today's discussion, we talk about Putin's strategies that relates to Ukraine the current military, geopolitical, and economic situation, how this crisis might evolve, and the global implications both economically and politically. And I'd like to start with John, and I hope that you can provide some context on Russia and Ukraine and sort of how we got to where we are now. Yeah, well, it, it, interesting. Let me start a little bit to talk about Putin and what makes him tick, because you know, at the end of the day, a week ago, you know, many people would have assumed he wasn't going to invade Ukraine. And, you know, essentially nobody could answer was it, whether he was or was it, wasn't going to. And as much intelligence as the U.S. and Western officials have, they still didn't know because it was all in the head of one person. You know, when you're a dictator and you've, you've created a system around yourself where uh, you know, people have to come to you and, and you don't know, you have no idea. It was all in his head. So a little bit about him. And then I'll, and I'll talk a little bit what he cares about, so where we are now. So, you know, one thing that most important to me about Vladimir Putin is he's a career checkist. What that means, he's a career intelligence officer. He's a, he was a career KGB officer. And that term checkist re relates to the original Bolshevik intelligence service called the Cheka. And any Russian intelligence officer calls themselves a proud checkist because the Cheka, when the Bolsheviks took over in, in 1918, they, the first thing that new government did was create a, an intelligence service to sort of you know, kill off any potential domestic opponents, as well as to keep their enemies at, at bay. And they did that right from the beginning, doing a lot of the things that we've seen since the 2016 election, for example. They used subversion, deception, they used disinformation, assassinations around the world, all these kind of things. And they continue to do that throughout the Cold War. So that's really important to understand Vladimir Putin, because he grew up in a, in a system where they were using information warfare creating false stories and disinformation and killing their opponents from the beginning. The other thing to understand about him is, you know, he was in the KGB when the Soviet Union fell, you know, and I think it's probably hard for us here to understand how that must have affected somebody psychologically. They thought they were in the world's, you know, second greatest superpower. They probably thought it was the greatest superpower. He worked for the KGB, which is a sword and shield of the, of the regime, you know, the most important, arguably, part of the regime and protecting it and his whole country fell apart. And he tells story, even in his own biography, about what that meant to him. And he talked about when he was a KGB officer in Dresden in East Germany, uh, when the, the wall was starting to fall and there was protesters coming around his consulate where he was working, you know, he contacted the military attache in Berlin and said, you know, we need Soviet troops here. And uh, the uh, Military attache in Berlin called him back shortly thereafter and said, you know, we've been trying to contact Moscow, but Moscow is silent. 
And Putin talks about this and uses it in his own book to suggest that when the country needed to use its monopoly on brutality, when it needed to be tough, it was silent. And his point is, whenever he would have a chance to change that, when he, he would ever have a chance to make sure that the, the regime was powerful and it used its brutality and its strength when it needed to, he would do it. His view is, you know, the, the weaker beaten and the, and the most important thing about any government is to, to maintain a monopoly of power and a monopoly of brutality. And so, you know, another thing to understand about, about him is, you know, we often talk about, you know, how does he negotiate? What is he doing? And I think a lot of us are now seeing that he's gone into to Ukraine, that, you know, he's a sort of a serial liar and, and someone who sort of is always playing others. And so it was Gary Kasparov, the famous chess champion that sort of talked about, he says, listen, Putin doesn't play the situation on the chessboard, he plays the opponent. And so he has this sort of gift for sniffing out weakness and trying to then take advantage of that weakness to amplify it or to exploit it. So how do we get here? Like, what are the things that he really cares about? And so I'll, I'll mention a few that he sort of claims and it led to this crisis, but then there's sort of one that's, that's really important that when you talk about dictators. So the, the first thing to realize is this whole thing is completely manufactured. There was no threat to Russia. You know, NATO was not expanding. There hasn't been talks for years about including Ukraine. There, there is no threat from Ukraine to Russia. It's a much smaller and weaker country. All of the things that he brought up, you know, that, that led to this were things that were from like the 1990s. You know, th this is stuff that easily could have been discussed, negotiated, dealt with, but it has to do with that sort of mentality of the man. You know, he's always had this sort of sense of grievance, of emotional anger against the West and the United States. His narrative is that when the powerful Soviet Union fell, it was because the West and the, and the United States were trying to destroy Russia. They wanted to humiliate Russia and keep it down. And of course, you know, that's another manufactured thing. I worked in Moscow in the embassy in the 1990s for the very organization that would try to destroy Russia. That's what we were doing. And the United States government was trying everything they do to bring Russia into the family of nations, to support them economically, help them. And if there's an argument to be had from that period of time, it's perhaps that we didn't do enough, not that we were trying to destroy Russia or weaken it. And so there's, there's a couple of things that he said consistently that he wants the death of NATO. He wants NATO to go away. He, want, he doesn't want all of these Western security services on his, on anywhere near his borders. You know, In fact, when he took office, it, it was the NATO general secretary, I think Rasmussen, who met him and said, you know, Mr. President Putin, my goal is to increase cooperation with Russia. And Putin reportedly responded with the question of his own. He said, do you know my mission, Mr. Rasmussen? is to make sure that your organization no longer exists. And so he's had that view ever since. He wants the US out of Europe and he wants NATO dead. And the other thing he wants is he wants countries on his borders to be weak and vassals of the Kremlin. Um, it's democratic expansion that threatens him really more than NATO expansion. He doesn't want successful democratic countries nearby, which can be a sort of a sign to his own people what's, what's certain possible. In fact, you know, bear with me for a second on a quote. George Kennan said years ago, long ago, he said, quote, the jealous, the jealous and intolerant eye of the Kremlin can distinguish in the end uh, only vassals and enemies. And the neighbors of Russia, if they do not wish to be one, must reconcile themselves to being the other. So with that said, those are the things he's claimed sort of led to this problem. But the big one, and then I'll stop for a while, is he's a dictator. It's about survival. Dictators you know, have to worry every day about staying in power, making sure there's not people out there who maybe want to sort of take power from them or, or they want to maintain control. And so with the, when there's a country, when you create a country where there's no means for a peaceful transition of power, everything is about staying alive, staying in total control. And so Putin, in his 20 years of being in power, has witnessed a number of really strong men fall, everywhere from Egypt to Ukraine to Georgia, in around the world. And, you know, he, he probably has visions of Gaddafi being filmed in a sewer, being sodomized in a lead pipe. And that is what he is trying to do. It's all about maintaining power and staying in power. And then as we go on, I'll, I don't want to feel like I'm talking too much here. We can go on about sort of, you know, how we ended up where we are and what, and what, and what where we might go from here. Right, John, that was amazing, given that context and background. Can you give the, 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 the audience here a sense of the current situation 
as you understand it from your vast network of spies and strategic <laughs> assets that you still probably actively engage with. And, you know, the, one of the questions just came in is like, what was the, what was the catalyst for Putin's making the decision to act now? That, that's what's crazy about this. There really wasn't a catalyst. You know, you, he's created these false narratives that, you know, NATO is expanding. It's a threat to him. Well, NATO wasn't expanding. It hasn't expanded since, what, 2012 or whatever. And, and it really, like I said, it, it's about democratic expansion rather than NATO expansion. He worries about a successful and democratic Ukraine on his border that, can, that looks like a success to his own people. So they can say, hey, what, why if Ukraine can be successful and Western and democratic, why can't we be? And the answer is Vladimir Putin. And so those are the sort of things that, and so where we are now, you know, I think, you know, when you're a dictator for 20 years, it's sort of like, it's sort of the classic thing. There's so much power around you. I think as time goes on, people are afraid to bring you bad news. No one wants to walk up to Vladimir Putin and say, uh, sir, you're very wrong about this. This is, <laughs> we should change it. And so I think, you know, having been in power for so long, and we see it from those pictures where he's like 50 feet away from his advisors at a, at a table that sort of suggests this kind of thing. I, I think he's gotten to a point where, you know, he believes his own sort of bull. And, uh, and, thought that he had to do this. You know, he went into, if you remember in 2014, he went into Crimea and he took the Eastern part of, of Ukraine. I think he believed that, you know, that's a largely Russian speaking areas. I think he believed that the Russian speakers there would rise up and be thrilled to be part of Russia and get away from Ukraine. Well, it, it didn't work. And so he eventually had to send in his soldiers in there to try to like, you know, fight their way in. And that still hasn't worked. They haven't even taken over the whole area they tried to do. And so this is sort of the third step is, is you know, they're going to go in and sort of crush Ukraine. And so I think he expected this one to go quickly. I think he's seen, you know, Western armies and U.S. Army go in and use sort of pinpoint attacks. And very quickly, we'd be able to sort of, the, the regime would fall, and then he would come in and put in his own sort of, his own, you know, fake regime that would support Russia. And as we've seen, it hasn't really worked it that way, you know. The, the communication between their, their troops, all these kind of things have sort of gone into a mess. And it's actually created a different problem for them is the whole world is now paying attention. The whole world is now, you know, a lot of us who've been following for Russia forever have been saying, hey, we need to crack down on him. He's exactly the kind of person, if you don't push back, he's going to take that as weakness and continue to move along. And multiple administrations have failed to push back on Putin so that when this crisis arose, we had very little to deter him. He had gotten his way so many times. We had assumed every time if we gave him an off-ramp, he would maybe come around and change and join the family of nations, and it never happened. He hates us. He wants us to go away. He wants to overthrow the rules-based order. And so I think we now realize, the rest of the world now realizes, you know, he is someone who has to be fought and deterred. It's not someone we can negotiate with. So one quick thing, you know, where are we and, and where does it go? And so what, what's hard here is, is it, it really depends on how he responds to what the world is doing to him. You know, everybody, everybody from Sweden and Finland and, and, and Switzerland or even, you know, pushing back. Switzerland was, was, was neutral against the Nazis, but now they're actually pushing back against Vladimir Putin. So, so it, it's a tough thing for the, the world is watching, but his traditional way of doing things, as we saw him in, in Syria and in Chechnya and other places, is to essentially destroy everything, to sort of carpet bomb and destroy the entire cities. And so I worry that, you know, if he sort of sees that it's not going well, rather than try to use his, you know, precision weapons, which we're finding out aren't so precision, they're gonna go back to the old traditional Russian way of war with massive artillery and, and bombing and sort of killing and murdering. Yeah, and I, th I think we're already seeing some of that. I think we're already seeing it. John, thank you so much. Roger, as one of the preeminent economists, really the last several several decades, certainly, I'd love to get a sense from you on the where we are economically. I mean, the one thing that we have noticed is that there's been a rapid coalition of, of I would say, support and focus from the EU and from the US. And to John's point earlier, Switzerland has picked a side for the first time since the Vatican. So like, these seem to sort of be sort of unimaginable even a week ago are now sort of happening. I'd love to get a sense of where you see that current situation at and how you see that playing out. Well, first, thank you. And uh, secondly, uh, to John's first point, you know, when I was in government, we had created this, not I personally, but the government in the US had created this notion of the G7, G8, inviting Russia in, we had invited them into the G20. 
And so, you know, they they were early on in, given this uh, olive branch to come in and be part of the part of the uh, international financial order. Um, and where are we today? Well, all of that has collapsed. We're seeing an unprecedented uh, coalition, including, as you've heard, Sweden, Switzerland, Finland, uh, aligned against you know, one country that is a large country. This is the, it's not the largest. It's like the, the 17th largest economy in the world, something of that sort. So this is not a small country we're dealing with. Um, and not only is there total alignment, but we're using in the financial world uh, a tool that has uh, never been used against a country this size, which is basically a precision exclusion of people from SWIFT. Um, SWIFT is the international telecommunication system. Uh, it brings in 11,000 banks from 200 countries. And uh, you cannot possibly move money around the world accurately without using SWIFT. Um, and so what you saw is when the uh, EU and, and the US uh, decided to uh, exclude an unnamed number of banks, and now we know it's just a handful of them, but important ones, immediately that led to a uh, run of the bank, quite literally in, uh, in Russia, uh, individuals you know, grabbing their rubles. You saw the ruble decline quite dramatically. Um, they had to close the stock market uh, in, in Moscow uh, on Monday. Um, and, and so, you know, this decision to start to exclude uh, Russian banks from the international telecommunication system of SWIFT has had dramatic effects in that country uh, in terms of undermining their trust and confidence in the banking system. Uh, the second thing that was also unprecedented for, for a country this size was an effort to make sure that they couldn't use uh, roughly $630 billion reserves in their central bank. Again, unprecedented. Uh, what that actually means is that their uh, reserves and so-called reserve currencies and, and dollars and, and euros and pounds, et cetera, that may be held in these countries in the West are not usable. So effectively, that's reduced their usable reserves to about, we think, a third, maybe a bit more, primarily gold, um, uh, and also the reserves that they have in the country. So their ability uh, to support their economy, the central bank to support their economy has been you know, dramatically weakened. And then the final thing, and all these are playing together, is obviously various sanctions against individuals and also uh, against trade. Uh, right now, energy is, is theoretically excluded, but we've seen a number of uh, Western companies that are critical to uh, moving Russian energy, uh, uh, oil around the world have been unwilling to, uh, uh, to participate in that supply chain. So even though you know, Russian oil has not yet been you know, officially moved into the sanction list, effectively it has uh, because of the lack of payment ability that I first identified, and then you know, Western companies not wanting to uh, be involved in transporting Soviet or Russian oil. So unprecedented uh, coalition of the willing, so to speak, and beyond with, with Sweden, Switzerland, et cetera. Uh, uh, unprecedented use of financial tools against a country that had been uh, and still technically is you know, in the club of the G20 uh, and unprecedented impact in a very large economy in terms of uh, having the run of the bank um, quite literally. Uh, that we've seen in driving uh, currency to being almost worthless. So, you know, we are living in uh, phenomenal times from the standpoint of uh, the financial uh, architecture of the, of the world. Phenomenal. Ro Rogers, a follow-up question. Where do you see this playing out? I mean, we, they, all these unprecedented actions have now taken place. Let's assume that this is going to be a protracted fight for Russia and Ukraine. I don't, I don't see this thing, you know, sort of being resolved in the next you know, certainly next week or two. How, how, do you, how do you think this plays out and the effects do you think that's going to have on the global economy? So three different ways it's already started to play out. One, obviously, is um, increasing the price of, of oil um, well over, I think, $110 today. Um, and, you know, very, very important impact globally. Um, that's increasing the discussion around something called stagflation, the possibility that inflation picks up and we still have slowing growth. Um, the last time we had an oil shock of this magnitude back in 1973 and 1979, in fact, that was one of the causes of the stagflation that we had to deal with. 
This time things are slightly different to be fair. Um, and so how are they different? Well, in 73 and 79, oil prices first tripled. They stayed at that high plateau. And then in 79, they doubled again. So while energy prices, oil prices have clearly gone up, we're not talking about a doubling or a tripling of, of, of oil prices right now. Um, the second thing that's different from then um, is the United States has developed its own uh, uh, oil capabilities. We are energy independent. And in fact, we are the ability, uh, not as much as we're gonna need, but we have an ability to export uh, liquefied natural gas uh, and others are as well to support, um, uh, to support the Europeans that need that uh, as it gets, not now, but back into heating season. So one thing is risk of stagflation going up, but I think it's not probable uh, what we saw in, in 69 and 79, et cetera, but the talk is certainly higher. Um, and for sure, this is doing the second thing, which is creating some uncertainty for all the central banks that were on a process of normalizing uh, interest rates. Uh, Chairman Powell had his testimony today um, he, he opened by talking about uncertainty, but he went on to continue the discussion around managing inflation, um, probably not as, as aggressively as some of his colleagues had been hinting, um, but nevertheless creating some uncertainty there. The answer that he gave looks to me as though the markets liked it because there's a lot of green now in the major indices here, um, uh, in the US at least. So that's the second issue, uh, you know, how do central banks deal with this? And then there's a third longer term issue, which is excluding, using the SWIFT tool, excluding you know, a major country from SWIFT. Um, we'll have, at this stage, of the unpredictable spillover effects on how others think about their reserves, how they think about linking to uh, um, uh, the communication system. Uh, don't know yet how that's gonna play out, but there will certainly be talk about in some capitals, not major ones, but some smaller ones. Um, you know, how do we think about reserves? How do we think about SWIFT, et cetera? Uh, those are questions that have really not been on the table since the fall of the Berlin Wall. So some uncertainty, uh, some certainty, and then these longer terms, uh, multiplier effects, hard to gauge how, that, how things settle up. That you're happy you're not in your old job. Um, sounds like a lot. Man, <laughs> no, no, just the opposite. It's great to be in the Fed when these moments are occurring. Okay. <laughs> They'll handle it well. Awesome. Um, so I, I want to I want to talk now about so what we think happens next. Um, so maybe starting with you, John. Sure. From a from a geo geopolitical standpoint, where do you how do you see this playing out over the next month or two? And and I'm very curious, not just tying that to the, the relationship with 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 Europe, but also with um, how it can affect China, because my, my sense is Russia sort of back to you know Soviet days as far as isolation uh, and I, I, isolationism from from uh, the Western sort of markets and, and opportunity sets, and you know their their biggest probably partner you know left available to them at least today is, is China. It'll be interesting to see how that morphs and, and and changes and evolves over as as inevitably Russia's military efforts sort of pick up momentum and speed. Um, I'll start by saying I think you know the administration has done a pretty good job once they sort of started focusing on how to to deal with Putin and deal with this crisis, but they came in with a pretty weak hand. Uh, the administration first started their policy towards Russia to, was to create a stable and predictable relationship with Russia. Now, anybody, any Russia followers who've been seeing what Vladimir Putin's been doing for the last at least eight to ten years, he's been at war with us. He's had a political war. That's where he's trying to use disinformation and cyber attacks and all these other kind of things, you know, fomenting uh, violent groups around Europe and all these type of things. We were never going to have a stable and predictable, predictable relationship with him. He wants to overthrow essentially the rules-based order. He wants us out of Europe. He wants, you know, U.S. and Europe divided and weak. And so he has tried to build a relationship with China. And just prior to the Olympics, he went out to China and met with Xi and they put together, you know, it was quite an amazing statement. I, I listened to um, former Australian Prime Minister uh, Paul Rudd, who is a China expert and was the ambassador in China, among other things, talk about it. And he said it was really unique for China because it, it really tied those two countries together more than ever before. It suggested that China was much more on the Russian, following the Russian thing, 
saying negative things about NATO, negative things about the West, which was surprising because they've always tried to be careful about, you know, never supporting something that would break across borders and maintain their markets. And so, you know, what we've seen since the invasion happened is, you know, I think China had a real opportunity on the world stage for sort of really the first time to make a foreign policy statement to put themselves out there as, you know, a bigger player. And I think they really fumbled the ball here. You can argue that China is essentially winning the 21st century. Their growth is incredible. They want and need a stable rules-based order because they're winning that rules-based order. They're becoming rich on that rules-based order. Whereas Vladimir Putin is a loser of the 21st century. They are, they're losing big time. They want to overthrow that rules-based order. They want to, they want to create problems in, inside of it. And so that, that relationship doesn't seem like a natural one to me. And I, and I don't understand why China would want to tie themselves to a violent and loser kind of guy like Putin with a really tiny economy the size of you know, Portugal or Italy and you know, who might then invade countries in Europe, which then China's gonna have to be stuck whether they support that or not support that. And we can see in recent days that China is sort of, again, fumbling to try to say, well, you know, yes, we said we were with Russia, but we're not really allies, but we really, we don't want war, but we wanna support what we said. Like, so they're having a tough time dealing with these kind of issues. And actually the China-Russia thing, you know, in the long term is not really natural for Russia either. You know, there's, Russia is gonna become a pariah here. Its economy is going to depend on that relationship with Russia, and as big and a tough man as as Putin is, he's going to find himself being the little brother to big China. And at some point, China is not going to care about the little brother. And you know, Putin, you can bang his chest all he wants, but he's not. If that's the relationship, if he's reliant on China, he's really sort of in a weak position, even with his own people. Roger, uh, one of the questions that came in was maybe going a layer deeper on the oil piece for for Russia. You mentioned it as far as effectively they've been isolated, but it, it, you know, the, I, I think I think the core. Maybe if you could go a little deeper, one of the questions that come in is, is given that oil prices are at a seven year high and that fifty percent. I don't know what the actual percentage is, but some significant portion of, of Russia's GDP is tied to oil. And the fact that it has been excluded, at least officially, I realize practically there's been a lot of steps, but but if there are trading with, with China, which has got an unlimited appetite for stuff like this, it theoretically could give them some sustainability, some viability long or not, vice as taking that next step. Do you think that's even an option that 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 Europe would consider doing just given you know how much this has escalated in the last the last couple of days? Well, I, I think the answer is uh, given the unprecedented nature of what they've already done. Um, it wouldn't surprise me to see the next step, partially for the reasons you pointed out, which is effectively Russian oil is, is basically a, a commodity that, that much of the West doesn't want to talk, touch in terms of moving it around. So already, regardless of what has been officially decided, there is clearly some motion um, that is making it more and more difficult to get hold of oil. And think about it. How, did, if, you know, how is Russia going to pay for it? Uh, you know, it, it, it's not all, but many of its banks are excluded from the international payment system. You know, recognize something else that happened. Um, uh, the Germans decided to not certify the Nord Stream 2 uh, gas pipeline. Uh, that would have increased um, the amount of gas coming from Russia into Germany and through Germany to the rest of Europe by something like 50%. So it's pretty clear that, you know, energy uh, as a stick is not nearly as potent as it had been before. Now, what is going to, I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but to a point that John made, this uneasy, very interesting, you know, um, uh, alliance, if that's what it is, between Russia and China, that has very important energy uh, overlays to it, right? I, there was an agreement, I believe, um, between Russia and China a few years ago to trade with each other in their currencies and not in the US dollar. And to the point that was made earlier, um, natural gas and, and oil uh, would be very, very beneficial to the rapidly growing economy of China. So I can imagine you know, uh, the Chinese playing a bit of a game in which Russian oil comes out through you know, perhaps some Chinese companies. There are a large number of Chinese oil companies. We don't really know, you know how much uh, you know, their reserves are. We see them around the world you know, drilling for oil all over the place. And so this may end up being a very helpful answer to them in terms of getting 
that useful commodity, um, not having to use any hard currency and avoiding some geopolitical uh, concerns of drilling in some very, very unsavory countries. So I can imagine that being an outcome. Uh, let me pick up on a point that John made. Uh, I've observed the same thing, which is, um, you know, and he's more aware of these issues than I am, but, you know, the, the, the Chinese wanting to play a constructive role, I think they said, around the Ukraine. Um, and he's also right that, you know, the, the Chinese have benefited greatly from the existing trading system, and they want to stay in that system. So one of the things that might limit them is the fear of secondary sanctions against their company. Um, so it's a complicated story with China where, you know, trying to uh, play a leading role, trying to position themselves as an alternative to uh, the West, trying to position themselves even in the payment system world as an alternative to SWIFT, those things might start to arise. Uh, and this linkage on, on energy um, we'll find some Russian oil, I think, coming out from China. But at the end of the day, you know, I really think China um, is not going to, to, to the point we were earlier, play, you know, overly supportive vis-a-vis -vis Russia for obvious reasons. And therefore, I think even, even with oil going up in price, it's not going to be sustaining the, the Russian economy as much as people might imagine. Yeah, that's super helpful. I heard a, a an old colleague of mine, you know, back from the from the military days was talking about the calculus that went into Russia making this decision, John, Roger, to, 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 to invade. And obviously, you know, Putin's on record, as you, as you said, one that he believes that the worst geopolitical failure of the 20, 20th century was the collapse of the Soviet Union. And, and it's sort of his stated objective is to sort of reconstitute that. Um, and he's probably looking for the right time to do that. If you look at the last five years, you could argue that, you know, traditional relationships uh, had been sort of deprioritized or had even frayed potentially under, under, you know, some of the actions that, you know, us and other allies have taken. And so maybe he saw as a moment of weakness, but what I heard, which was interesting was that sort of the events of Afghanistan, specifically that, you know, sort of the botched pullout of Afghanistan at the beginning of this year, uh, or, or, or sorry, sorry, the, the fall of last year, sort of sent a clear message that says, well, look, you know, this wasn't really handled well. And one and two, it's sort of a clear sign of like how they sort of think about your allies and partners. And that was sort of like the, I heard like one of the major final straws that said, all right, I, I can go in. There's probably nothing these guys are going to do about it. In fact, I heard about a meeting that the Russian foreign minister had with senior officials in the U.S. where he stated, hey, we may, we may not go into Ukraine, but there's nothing that America's going to be able to do about it to stop the process, right? Just so sort of like the, the flippant sort of arrogance. And then separately, I know there's a lot of discussions, you know, maybe to Roger's points that this could also be seen as an opportunity for, for China to continue to saber rattling, potentially take the next step in Taiwan, which obviously has significant, significant geopolitical implications. And my assumption is given the swift response economically and how interlinked China is to the global economy, that my guess is that's pretty massive deterrent. But I, I, I'd be curious to see you guys talk, uh, talk about that for a second. Maybe start with you, John. Um... Yeah, I, I do think, like I said, I think multiple administrations have misplayed Putin. I think he's essentially been at war with us, sort of in their intelligence doctrine, political warfare, information warfare, whatever you want to call it, to try to weaken us from the inside for a minimum of at least 10 years since 2008 when he went into Georgia. And he stated it you know, directly at the Munich conference there that that was his goal. And I think since that time, multiple administrations have tried to deal with him. And every time he's done something where we really should have and could have pushed back, um, we, we didn't do so because I would think we thought, hey, we want, if we accommodate him, if we give him an off ramp, you know, maybe he'll come around. You know, presidents have big egos and they think that, you know, if there's a problem, they can solve it with their wonderful personalities. And I think we realized that, you know, so we came into this uh, pretty, in a pretty sort of weakened space. And Afghanistan was a huge problem. I mean, we, we, looked, we, we didn't work with our allies. It was, you know, essentially surrendering to the Taliban. It was a complete mess. And it was certainly seen by the Chinese and Russians as, as weakness. But a bigger thing, I think, is, is our own tribal nature, political nature here in the United States. And he's been trying to foment and exploit that and, and, and use all sorts of disinformation, deception to, to mess with us inside. But, you know, you look at what happened on January 6th and all these other kind of things. You know, a good portion of the Republican Party is supportive of, of Putin and doesn't care about what he does around the world. And, and Americans are sort of, see, they, we see our political opponents as the enemy. We don't see Russia anymore as the enemy or foreign People. I think we've been so used to essentially years and years of, of 
success and peace and economic growth that we sort of forget there's a price to pay for that to, to, to deter people who want to change that rules-based order. And of course, now we're faced with it. And so even Biden in his speech last night said, you know, we know that we've learned the lesson that if you if you don't push back against dictators, they will continue to create chaos. Well, that's absolutely true. And we didn't push back for quite a long time and sort of we ended up sort of stuck here. And so, yeah, Vladimir Putin, the person with grievances against the West, created sort of a false narrative about, you know, the West being a threat to him. And having that nose for weakness, I think, put all those things together. And perhaps having been a dictator so long, not getting real information anymore, thought that this he could go in and the West would not be able to push back. I mean, you, Europe really has been weak over the last, you know, couple decades. They have not invested in defense. They have been really inward focusing. And so, you know, he didn't necessarily misread that, but he forgot that the size of our economies and, you know, our long history together and the fact that we have allies and they don't allowed us to sort of quickly come around and, and push back. And so I think he, hopefully he's very surprised about how quickly Europe, the United States and Western leaning countries around the world have come together on this. Yeah, let me, let me jump in and say from the economic standpoint, there was an economic equivalent of not pushing back, which is when he went into Crimea, um, there was discussion, rumor, talk of using the SWIFT tool, i.e. moving some Russian banks out of access to SWIFT. He explicitly said they would be perceived as an act of war and we didn't do it. Um, there was a moment when perhaps, I'm not sure they should have, but to John's point, in the finance world, clearly a point of weakness. Similarly, you know, the uh, using the oil and more importantly, a natural gas tool back to the economics, perhaps link, decoupling, you know, Germany, Western Europe from the US around that. And there have been quite a bit of friction around this question of uh, Western Europe becoming more and more linked to Russia in, in the energy sphere. Um, so perhaps he read that, that's another sort of economic story that feeds very much into John's story, you know, thoughts of, you know, perhaps Germany won't stand up. And one of the things that I think is really quite amazing, spilling over a little bit into what John talks about, but the focus that the Germans now have on spending much more of their budget on defense, you know, from the standpoint of, a, of an economic policy, that is a pretty dramatic move uh, to finally get up to two, two and a half percent uh, of their GDP on defense. All of that triggered by this. Um, and to John's point, you think about finance, you think about economics, most of the early signals were, yeah, maybe Europe is not gonna jump behind the US around these things, and perhaps they're gonna go you know, their own way. Um, uh, so I can imagine, I know nothing about his psychology other than what I just heard from John, but if he were looking for points of weakness in the Western alliance on this economic topic, um, there could have been two or three straws in the wind that might have you know, reinforced what he saw around Afghanistan and other things. So, um, you know, all of a piece, and I, mean, I think all of us, perhaps Putin as well, uh, are surprised at, at the strength of the unified voice in the economic space as well as the geopolitical space. Because um, one, it's not clear even the economics of one who would have predicted that, you know, 10 days to, uh, to two weeks ago. The other thing to, to note economically is um, you know, other than energy, Western interaction, financial interaction, business interaction with Russia is relatively limited. You know, there are very few banks that have any link to, uh, to Russia. They're not normally thought of other than energy as being sort of credit worthy. Um, uh, and so, you know, their, uh, the collapse of their economy other than this question of energy, is unlikely to have a negative spillover effect back to you know, US banks, for example, um, um, or, or even most European banks. So, uh, and then we saw today the stock market turned around. So you know, the, you know, there are no, there seem to be no replications in Western economy, other than how this oil thing plays out from the, 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 the turmoil and chaos that has emerged in, in Russia, because they have over many, many years tried to decouple from the West. And the result of that is we look like we can penalize them more than they can penalize us in the world of finance and economics. Great. Leave, can I ask one quick answer? One, add one quick thing is, 
in a, in a sense, when you look at Vladimir Putin, you got to look at someone who's essentially like, you know, a bully or an organized crime boss, and he has that mentality. And so, you know, when I talk about we didn't push back over all those years, he also has that real skill. And again, he's a dictator. He doesn't have any threats internally have to worry about, about, about intimidating and threatening and pushing back. So every time, you know, we even hinted that we might do these kind of sanctions, we might push back. He sort of went nuclear and pushed back and, and made it clear. He, he separated us from our allies by everybody saying, hey, it's not worth going that far because he might do something crazy. And we're seeing that now. He's threatening, you know, nuclear war. And you guys have said mean comments to me. Therefore, I'm putting my nuclear, my nuclear weapons on alert. I mean, it's the same kind of thing. He's he uses those threats to, to scare us and push us back and then have some, you know, allies. It's a hard thing to keep, you know, 20, 30 allies together on things. Some people are going to be like, oh my God, let's back off. We need to offer him, you know, face-saving measures. We need to, you know, listen to what he wants. And so, I mean, he's very, very good at that game of sort of a bully tactics of, you know, threatening and making people back off. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. There's two questions just came in. I want to ask you that I want to ask you guys. I think they're related. The first is, um, is the Russian military performing as poorly as is suggested in the press? If yes, what are the implications longer term? So that's question one. Maybe John, you could check, try that. And then question two is acknowledging that Putin is a dictator um, and that weakness is an existential threat, probably to his 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 hold on power. How does this resolve in a way that allows Putin a way out that doesn't guarantee his downfall? What does that path look like and in what time frame? Specifically, is there an acceptable course of action to Putin that would lead to the end of sanctions? Maybe take that for Rogers. Maybe John, start with the, the Russian military performance to date as you see it relative to you know our assessment of them going into it. And then um, and then and, and then the, the what what is a way out of this process? Is there a way to save well, face? I'll make a quick comment on the on the way out off-ramp thing is. You know, there's there's a lot of that now. Now that he's made these nuclear threats, there's a lot of that. We have to have he has to have a means to save face. He has to have an off ramp. He has a way have a way to stay in power here. And sort of my quick thing is, you know, he manufactured this entire thing thing out of whole cloth. There was no threat to him. There was no pushing NATO. There was nothing here. His his grievances and anger are based on things from like you know the 1990s and such. He made he he made this up. And my take is like, listen, he if he needs a way off to face save, he can make he can kill a bunch of people and claim victory and back off. And he can, he can make up his own face-saving things. It's not on us to have to somehow give him a, a way out of this. Um, but on the, on the military thing, it's hard. You know, I'm not a military expert. It's hard to follow these things. It's certainly hard to follow them through the media. There's sort of this world of you know, military Twitter people who are finding things. And, and the world of open source intelligence has gotten so big. You know, The Bellingcats of the world, I don't know if you guys follow that group among others, that have been able to use big data sets to pull together, you know, incredible amount, you know, so if there's a bomb that goes off somewhere now, there's so much social media and pictures taken around there, they can be sucked in and pulled together and, you know, TikToks and everything. So on one hand, this is making it hard for Putin because Ukrainians and others are, are, are sort of putting, pushing out to the world the stuff they're doing. And so, yes, it looks like they, they really screwed this up. I think, again, he's a dictator. I'm sure they've told them that, you know, the military is strong and ready to go. But at the same time, the people around him, they're, they're, you know, it's like the, they're massive criminals. They've been stealing money at, at all places. So whoever the Shoigu, who's a minister of defense, has been saying, yes, sir, yes, sir, we got this co covered. I'm sure at the same time, you know, he's got another, another crony of Putin who says, well, I want my company to do X, Y, and Z. And even if that company is the, is the worst choice, that's the way that guy skims money. And so over time, I think they've created this Potemkin village where they think their military is more powerful and, and put together than it is, but it's often a, kludged together by these corrupt cronies who are all making money off of this thing, and we're seeing it in action now. So a lot of the things that our professional military says about communication and you know and surprise and all these type of things, you know, they're not showing themselves to be terribly effective. There's you know they're running out of gas, they're running out of food. You got Russian soldiers turning around and walking home. Uh, the Ukrainians are using the sort of social media against them. So it doesn't mean that Putin can't now go to the old school thing and just raise whole cities and stuff. That's certainly possible. But, uh, you know, he does have the whole world watching now. So in terms of real details about how the military is doing, you know, doesn't look good. Yeah, it doesn't look Roger, so, what's the path out economically for? for well, I, I think it's very narrow, frankly. Um, once we've gone to the place where we're willing to exclude some of their banks from uh, from the international communication network, as I indicated, once we've gone to the place 
unprecedented where we said to a central bank, we're going to limit your ability to use your reserves. You know, it's you, you know, the only way to come back from that is to say we are going to be good financial citizens. And, you know, it doesn't seem like that's in the Putin playbook. The other thing that's fascinating is, as we all know, um, when you see a run on banks, as occurred during the Great Depression, there was a, uh, I'm, I'm speaking to you from, from the UK, there was a line around a, a, a bank here in 2008, 2009, governments tend to change, um, you know, i.e. citizens think that is unacceptable. When I am not sure that I trust the banks, the government really should be held accountable in some way for that. I don't see how that works in Russia, given what has been said. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know the way out. Uh, a couple of questions came in. Yes, I do think uh, West, Western banks that have been, you know, putting Russia more and more off limits are going to continue to do that. You know, we have in the West all these rules about sort of know your customer and anti-money laundering, et cetera. Well, the money in Russia X the, um, you know, X the uh, oil and, and energy is in the hands of these oligarchs. They don't tend to bank in the West um, for obvious reasons. So I think what the way out is, you know, Russia becoming more and more isolated, you know, more of a small economy, more limited in their trading partners, uh, probably a barter type relationship with China and a few others. Um, and so I, I think from the standpoint of economics, this has really backfired and has pushed Putin, you know, further away from any ability to actually you know, drive and claim that he's got a great economy. Um, he didn't have one before. Uh, he has even less of one now. And you know, the, the working around of his one big resource, which is energy and others, um, uh, I think is, is going to continue. And we'll find other ways to, to get, a, get along without the raw materials that are you know, the major exports from, from Russia. So it'll be very, very interesting. And I don't see a way out other than, you know, trying to be really good citizens and separating the average Russian from, from Putin. And I honestly have no idea how that unfolds in a dictatorship. So, John, do you, do you think then that literally Putin's got to, 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 in order to fix this for Russia, that Putin has to basically go away? Like, I mean, like, like lose power, be, be overthrown. I mean, that, that's sort of the doomsday scenario here because, because he holds a nuclear arsenal. And it's a real threat. That's obviously creating a lot of anxiety collectively. And yeah, anyways, let me ask you that. Well, the problem is he's created a system. He's changed the constitution. He stayed in power. They don't really have a means of sort of, of uh, ch changing of power in a, in a nonviolent way. And so we're sort of stuck. And so there, I see a few possibilities. You know, the one is sort of, this becomes a, an ongoing sort of quagmire. There's a number of these. So you know, since 2014, they've been stuck in, in Eastern Ukraine and Crimea and in Georgia and in, in Moldova of these sort of frozen conflicts that aren't completely solved. And there's Russian soldiers in these places. And, you know, essentially what in, in, the, in the quagmire possibility, he bombs the hell out of the place, you know, kills off the, the leadership there, you know, tries to put in his own people. There's this sort of low level insurgency against him. And it sort of main, goes on forever, like it has in Eastern Ukraine for the last eight years. There's the other one is you know, it, there's an old, the Iron Curtain comes back down over Europe. You know, there's brutality, he cracks down. He has to crack down really at home because he worries about being overthrown. And so there's more people thrown in jail. He types up in the type tightens up domestically. Europeans and NATO has to rearm and sort of push up. So we have an Iron Curtain. There is the possibility of of sort of a larger larger war here with NATO, right? If, a lot of people talk about the no-fly zone. No-fly zone means we're shooting down Russian planes. So this is a this is a whole different thing here. If you're bringing in war with NATO and with the West, you know, or over time in one of these sort of frozen conflicts, we're sort of rearming from NATO countries, and the Baltic people are sending things across the border. I can imagine problems. You know, wars don't follow a script. You never know how these things are going to go once they get going. Um, you know, if you see, if you look at the map, there's a little small part of Russia that's separated from the rest of Russia, Kaliningrad, it was old German uh, Königsberg. Um, you know, I can imagine now that he has sort of Belarus and Ukraine, he might want to make a connection to Kaliningrad, the other part of Russia, and that goes through NATO countries in the Baltics who he despises and thinks are weak, then you're at war with, with NATO. 
or there's there's some sort of just dirty compromise that sort of get, has this sort of go away. And then the one you mentioned, it's the Putin in the gutter scenario that you know that the former foreign minister Andrei Kozarev put out a tweet yesterday, the, the Russian foreign minister saying, telling people in the, the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs that they should all quit. Like it, this is really something inside a country like Russia. So, you know, when, when there's no legal way for this to happen, some sort of civil war, some sort of, you know, violent overthrow is certainly a possibility. Unprecedented time. So we're getting we're getting to the top of the hour. We've got to cut this off. I'd love to hear any closing comments, um, Roger, that you might have before before we end the session. Well, I've used the word unprecedented a few times, uh, and you know that's the main thing um, from the standpoint of finance. A country that's not huge but has you know, not irrelevant is now clearly being made a pariah, um, and I suspect from a financial standpoint, there's going to be a remaking uh, of uh, the international economic order with a rethinking of energy uh, in particular. Um, and I don't know where it's going to where it's going to play out. But Russia certainly is an important source of many commodities that we need in the West. Uh, but I, it's hard for me to see quite how we pull back from all these sanctions. Um, and so very, very messy, opaque future uh, as far as I can see here. Great. Johnny, closing comments from you? Yeah, quick. I mean, um... And I apologize, I don't mean this to be domestic political comment, but there is one way that Putin actually wins this thing. It's hard to see how this comes out really well for him, but there is one way he truly can win. And in fact, if he affects our domestic politics so much that, that Trump is reelected, Putin actually does win, right? The United States pulls out of NATO, that we sort of weaken our relationship with Western allies. He allows Putin to do what he wants in, in Eastern Europe. And so, you know, there is an effect here that if, if you know, it affects our domestic politics to the point where Donald Trump or a Donald Trump-like candidate wins again, that really is sort of a lifeline to Vladimir Putin. And the other one is to think about, right, you know, now obviously the Ukrainian people, the incredible bravery, and there is, is really something. And besides the Ukrainians who are suffering here, the other people to think about who are really, you know, being thrown under the bus here are the Russian people. Vladimir Putin essentially in the great tradition of the Russian czars and the Communist Party bosses, they don't give a shit about their own people. And so they're, they, they're making their country an economic pariah. There's no economic future for people in Russia. They're gonna be beholden to a massive China. They're sending their, their, their men off to war to be, come back in body bags. This is, not a good, this is not a good place for Russian citizens to be either. So Russians and Ukrainians, the people are the ones that are really suffering here. And that's... Yeah, well said. Thank you both so much for taking the time out of your incredibly busy schedules to, to talk about this, this, this really this critical topic. Um, I can't thank you enough. And with that, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and end the session. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Good seeing thank you. Thank you. Hey, pleasure, Roger. Thank you, John. If you want to watch the video recording of this episode or read the full transcript, you can head over to crosslead.training to create a free account and get access to many other resources. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoy the conversation I have with my friends, John and Roger.